Good morning. Our scripture reading today comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. Please follow along with me as I read. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, good morning. Happy Valentine's Day, Sunday. Uh, some have said, is that why you're wearing the coat? It could be for the 49ers, I'll let you figure that out, or, or the blood of Christ, let's that's, that's be religious, right? No. Have to wear a red coat on occasion, I guess, I don't know. Well, good morning, good morning, and if you are new here or have been just attending recently, we have a meet the pastor after the service at 1130 in the room that's directly behind the wall in the foyer area. We'd love to have you join us. Uh, I know Ben, our director of worship, will also be there as well. And just to love to get to know you a little bit in that time together. Well, if you would, turn to Acts chapter 2, starting in verses 42 through 47. The text that has just been read to you. And let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you. We thank you for your love and your grace for us. And as we celebrate Valentine's this week, um, with all of that, it, it was a reminder that... There's a great love that has been lavished on humanity. And it's not wrapped up in a chocolate box or in a candy heart. But Lord, it was your son who came to earth and died on a cross for us. And we're told that because you loved us so much, you sent your son. And we are so grateful. Father, as we um, go to the text today, we just ask that the Holy Spirit would guide us. Thank you for your word that never comes back void. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are joining us, we are journeying through the book of Acts. And we again are in chapter 2, starting in verse 42. If I took you to a building with, which was extremely quiet and with many books, you would say you were in a, a library. <laughs> if I took you to an establishment with chair, several chairs in front of mirrors and it smelled like shampoo, you'd say you were at a salon. If I took you to a location with long lines that moved rapidly and everyone said, it's my pleasure, you would know you were at Chick-fil-A, right? 
But what about the church? How would you describe this institution? And as we've seen in the earlier part of 2, we've seen the birth of the church. And Luke lays out, I believe, several marks of this new movement here in this latter part of chapter 2. And I would argue these activities and characteristics that marked that early church should be indicative of the church today. Big C. Notice what 42 says. They were devoting themselves. Uh, that's a loaded term. And they were devoting it first, he lists, the apostolic teaching or apostles teaching. We're going to see that there are several marks of devotion for the early church. The first of these is the preaching and teaching of the word of God. Of course, the question is, what is apostles teaching that's listed here in my English version? We're talking about that which is not just evangelistic, that is the good news of Christ, but I think instructional as well. They were fulfilling the Great Commission. Remember Matthew 28? You were to go and make disciples, teaching them on all things. So they're fulfilling that. That's why they're teaching them, making these new converts. But they are also modeling their master. Mark chapter 1 states Jesus came preaching, teaching the good news, the gospel of God. And so the apostles' teaching, and all we need to do is look earlier in chapter 2 at, at Peter's sermon. It, it's rooted in the Old Testament. There is an anchor which they go to. There's also a focus on Christ and it's full of doctrinal instruction. In other words, this isn't an elementary course. <laughs> this is a seminary class. It's in-depth. It's getting rooted into the things of Christianity. That which is grounded, built upon the Old Testament and comes into fruition through the person and, uh, of Christ himself. But notice how the teaching is addressed. Of course, the first is that they are devoted, which speaks of this ongoing activity. It's steadfast. It's single-minded to a certain course of action. It was used earlier in chapter 1 when the 120 were gathered in the upper room waiting for the Spirit to come after Christ had ascended. It says they were devoted to the cause. In fact, the activity is mentioned more times of the apostles in the book of Acts than any other activity. They're devoted. And here, the early church is devoted to the teaching. Uh, think of chapter 4, verse 20. We cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. And in chapter 6 of Acts, it says it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God. I love what one commentator states. He says, it's interesting to note that the early church did not try to duplicate the unique mountaintop emotional experience of Pentecost. Uh, they didn't try to have, okay, let's reproduce what the Holy Spirit did for us, for you, so you can speak in a dialect of a foreign language. No. It goes on to state they were content to let that remain the never-to-be-repeated experience that it was. Rather, they set up Sunday school. <laughs> Isn't that great? They set up teaching. And it's no coincidence that of the list that we're going to see here in verse 42, and really through this entire passage, that teaching comes first. Doctrine is always before duty. Exposition before experience. Experience must always be tested by doctrine, not doctrine by experience. And that's the case we see here. Every decision, every practice, every attitude, as we go through the book of Acts, will be brought into the conformity of God's word. 
It's the primary task of the church. And I would argue the minister to preach the word of God. I don't know about you, but I am so thankful for CBF, a place where we emphasize the word, whether it's in the children's ministry area. By the way, if you received the newsletter this week, you saw the excitement that Beth LaRosa, Dr. LaRosa, is officially serving now as our children's ministry coordinator. So Beth, welcome. Thank you very much. Isn't that exciting? What a blessing as we look to expand the children's ministry. Many thanks to all the teachers, the volunteers who serve countless hours in a vital area of our church. That is the children's ministry. But it's not just in children's with the curriculum that we select. And we're looking to do VBS this summer. But it's also with student ministries. There's the young men's and young women's Bible study. And many thanks to those teens, leaders who help us on that every other week when they meet. Our adult Sunday school teachers that provide. And then the, the weekly men's and women's Bible studies. And so there's an emphasis on the word. We see that in the early church, devotion to it. But notice what else. It says they're devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to, notice, fellowship. Not only did they devote themselves to the teaching, but they understood that they needed to be in one another's lives. Fellowship indicates more than just sharing. It's one of responsibility and it's one of accountability. I mean, think about it. Those of us who know Christ as our Savior, we share the same life, nature in Christ. We say the same Lord, the same Heavenly Father, the same Holy Spirit, the same eternity. No wonder Paul writes in Philippians 2, Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort provided by love, any fellowship in the Spirit, he says, any affection of mercy, complete my joy, be of the same mind, by having the same love, being unified in Spirit, and having one purpose, instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should in humility be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. Fellowship is key. As we look at this early church, this group of believers, and what is it that marks this church? It's devotion to the word. It's devotion to one another. Fellowship, you think about it, it's based on a negative. There's a sense of common need. There's a realization of our finiteness, our limitness. No wonder it says in the text they were filled with awe. While I don't espouse much of Karl Barth's theology, he makes a great statement. He states, genuine fellowship is grounded upon a negative. It is grounded upon what men and women lack. Precisely when we realize that we are sinners, do we perceive that we are brothers and sisters. It's a great comment. He's right. I had a professor in seminary who stated, we have the incredible opportunity to do ministry with one another, to labor with people who are marginally insignificant for the glory of God. <laughs> Isn't that great? I mean, that's part of fellowship. Who are we but sinners saved by grace? An understanding of that changes our outlook on how we engage one another. Unity in the fellowship of the early church was not based upon uniformity. So we got to keep that in mind. And there were limits to the fellowship. When sin is involved, areas of church discipline, or when individuals have done harm to the body of Christ, the scriptures are clear. Think of Paul with Alexander the coppersmith. He says, he did me much harm. The Lord reward him according to his deeds. Listen to what he's praying. 
And he tells Timothy to be on guard against him. Avoid him, he says. 2 Thessalonians 3, we command you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to keep away from any brother who lives an undisciplined life and not according to the tradition that they have received from us. So there is a limit to the fellowship, but we're commanded, according to Hebrews 10, let us consider how to stir up one another in love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Again, Bart is correct in this point. We realize we are sinners, so that should thus move us to see each other as brothers and sisters that are in fellowship together, working together. That's why avoidance and bitterness and, and saying, well, I'm going to separate is certainly an easy way out, but it's an abandonment and abuse of the fellowship. And that's what you see here in the early church. There was a devotion, a commitment, not only to the word, but to one another. We're required in the spirit of fellowship to develop a spirit of unity, mutuality, and generosity. Is that hard? Yep, it sure is. It takes work, it takes sacrifice, it takes humility, but it's required. Ephesians 4, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, putting up with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity, the spirit, and the bond of peace. It's a great exhortation for all of us. Such delight in gathering with others is what we see with sweet fellowship. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, there is that void. There is that disconnect. I mean, I, those of you who know Christ, you know, you've been at the restaurant and the server and you're going, they have to know Christ. There's just something about them. You know, there's this immediate connection. Well, there should be. We serve the same God, we have the same spirit, we got the same eternal home waiting for us, right? And, and for those of you who don't know Christ, that joy, that hope, that peace is missing, the disconnect. And where do you go for that apart from Christ and the body of Christ? What other source prepares you for death, gives you hope, joy, and peace, and prepares you to meet a holy God? I would argue nothing but Christ and the body while the church has not been, nor ever will be perfect, this side of eternity, the church is a collection of sinners saved by grace that come together to seek to love God and love others. And that is what I'm so grateful about CBF. We're seeking to do that, and you're doing it. Keep it up. And so there's a devotion to the, to the word. There's a devotion to, to the fellowship. Notice what else? To the breaking of bread, the text tells us. There was more than just the upper room, the supper, the Lord's Supper, which is reference to communion. It could be more of, of also having fellowship over a meal, a sense of, of sharing your goods, because we'll get to that in a minute. You know, it's hard, isn't it, <laughs> to eat a meal with someone when you hold a grudge. The T-bone tastes like bologna, if you can taste it at all, right? You're gagging on soup, uh, but you make it through. Uh, the, and Paul understood that because even when he comes to the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, he talks about how you have to examine your hearts before you take communion. And, and the whole context there is division. He says, be careful. In fact, he gives a great warning. That's why some of you are sick and some are even dead because you have brought your grudges, your disconnect with others to the Lord's table. And so there's a warning here for us. We come to the Lord's table, and it's not about 
Apollos, it's about Paul or Peter, as, as Paul is telling the church, but it's about Christ who has unified us. And so you see the sweetness of this church, this again, 3,000 plus souls at this point, who have come together, committed to the word, committed to fellowship, committed to the breaking of bread, and the text tells us also of prayer. Again, the book of Acts, every chapter will implicitly or explicitly reference prayer. Prayer is mentioned 25 times in this book. It's key. Ephesians 6, Without every, with every prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and to this end be alert. With all perseverance and petitions, and notice what Paul says, for all the saints. And again, just a little blurt, but I'm so thankful for our prayer meeting that's it's on Thursdays, led by Lurdu and Loriella, who oversee that. We also have the prayer list that goes out, uh, and you can catch that from going to the newsletter and clicking down at the bottom, but our, our church-wide prayer list that's out. And uh, what an opportunity to lift one up another in prayer, but also that the Lord would exalt. So prayer. And then finally, notice in verse 43, Reverential awe came over everyone, and many wonders and miraculous signs came about. I've labeled this worship, if you're following along in the notes, the reverential awe is the fear of the Lord. It, is, it calls for careful, respectful, and grave concern related to particular matters. We're going to see this as we move through Acts, this establishment of the church. The Lord's going to take serious sin. He's going to take serious unity, and we'll see that as we move along. But here in this early stages, the Lord moves in their midst, and you've got the signs and wonders, which I would argue are validating the apostolic authority, the message. Who's going to believe this? And then you see these miracles occur, which result in faith. The key here is that the power of God to change lives brings unmistakable authentication to the divine authority of the message that is preached. And so their worship is marked by awe. They had come to know that God does not fit tidy in some theological box or conforms to our expectations. He's far greater than that. And you see that here. So devotion to God marks the early church. There's another aspect that marks their, their, this body of believers, and that's seen in verse 44. All who believed were together and held everything in common. And we're told they had one big yard sale. They sold their property and their possessions and distributed the proceeds to everyone that has need. One of the proofs of repentance, remember they were called to repent earlier in two, one of the proofs of repentance is sharing that which God has showered upon us to others. Paul will stress this, and it's the importance throughout his ministry. In fact, his ministry has two prongs. One is preaching the gospel. The other was collecting resources for the poor. This text, however, has been often abused, and it's been used to support socialism or communism. Uh, should everything be held in common as it was then? Well, let's, I think we need to look at three things here. This is free today, but I think it's important we note this. All right, first is the historical context. We need to remember that approximately 15% of the urban population in antiquity were expendable. In other words, they were seen below human value. That was the beggars, the orphans, the widows, and family. 2% 
of a, the Jewish population controlled 85% of the wealth in the first century. There wasn't a middle class. If you were a carpenter or a fisherman, there was, you might, but for the most part, most people lived in poverty. To complicate matters, in this birth of the church, those who have embraced Jesus are now excommunicated from the synagogues. You now have no access to social programs, the care that was provided at the synagogue. You've lost that. And you've got to remember, we have many who have traveled to Jerusalem for Passover, Pentecost. They've converted. They're hanging out. You have the, these refugees, and they need to be provided for. So the context here is vastly different, I would argue, in some ways. But there's a, a grammatical context as well. The verb used here is iterative, which suggests they sold their goods periodically when the need occurred. This wasn't an activity that was once for all. In fact, the context in verse 46 is clear. They still had houses, so they didn't sell their home, all sold their homes. So we'll get to Barnabas later who sells his goods, and we'll get to Ananias and Sapphira who supposedly sold all that they sold, and we'll get to that in the context. But the conclusion is, and this is in your notes, Acts 2 is not providing or promoting a socialistic or communistic economic model. Instead, what it's reminding us that is all our earthly possessions stem from the Lord's gracious hand. True discipleship calls for nothing to eclipse our devotion to Christ and ministering to others. In the early, like the early church, I would argue we need to give voluntarily, temporarily, cheerfully, and motivated by love. So hopefully that clarifies a little bit of this text, which has often been abused we do need to remember 2 Corinthians 9, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. You cannot outgive God, right? And I was speaking to a church that has been very generous, and thank you for your generosity. Uh, I just had a, two conversations this week from church planners or pastors from other areas saying, how, how did you generate your funds? To build your building. You're only three and a half years old. <laughs> I said, that was the Lord working through our people. I have no other explanation. There's no formula, right? Yes, praise the Lord. And so you see this here. And so this body of believers, they're devoted. They're generous. And verse 46, every day. Now, 46 and 47, I've wrestled with this. To me, it summarizes a bit what has already been stated, but there's some tidbits here that are vital. Every day they continue to gather together by common consent in the temple courts, breaking bread, sharing their food, and glad and, and humble hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of the people. We're, we're told here that they come together. This is one of consent. It was mentioned in Acts 1.14. We see it here again. But notice the characteristics of the gatherings. First of all, look at the location. We're told several things. In verse 46, they were in the temple courts. Elsewhere it says they went from house to house. What does that tell us? I would argue worship is invading every area of their lives. They're, they're within their four walls, outside their four walls. It's not confined to one location. And that's key. But more significant, I would argue, is the manner in which they gather. And look at this. Don't miss this. This is, this is key. This is every day, so it's continual. We see this. 
with common consent, and we're told they do this with glad and humble hearts. Gladness is used frequently in the New Testament and the Old to speak of God's salvific act. In other words, what they are doing is coming, flowing out of having been saved. I mean, look at the last line of verse 47. All day they were doing this, those who were being saved. And so there's an understanding, if I've accepted Christ, this is what naturally flows out of my life. We see this in this gladness. Psalm 51 uses the same, the Greek translation of Psalm 51 says, it's used of God's deliverance. And so the joy that oozes out of our pores is because of all that the Lord has done for us. And so it's the gladness, but it's also, we see it's with humility, it's, it's simplicity, it's done with sincerity. If you want to know how you're doing in this area, in the way of giving, etc., examine the last time this past week you've given something to someone. That might be a, an encouraging word, it might be uh, a meal on the meal train. Whatever the case, was it out of duty? The need to be loved and appreciated? the desire for the favor to be reciprocated? Or was it done with joy and the need not to have to proclaim it? The joy that comes because I'm a follower of him and I understand what he's done for me. It goes back to that whole concept of fellowship. And notice, I love this, it says in verse 47, their gathering was done with the praise of God. It's easy to sit in a pew and sing praises to the Lord, but what about after service? <laughs> Are you making a beeline to criticize, complain, find a fellow prisoner to gossip or create dissension. Our praise to the Lord should not end after the service is ended, but it should continue as we praise the Lord, not only as, an, and as a solo, but as, as a choir, as, as a group of believers. When folks mention our names, do they immediately see a person who draws others to praise God and worship him? I remember a pastor that uh, our youth group had linked arms with years ago, and he had a habit of saying, glory, every time. The boat didn't work, glory. I was like, well, that's not what I was thinking, but okay, that's great. <laughs> His idea was to draw praise to the Lord. Well, we need to do a self-examination. So let me give you a few. I'm going to step on toes. Maybe, I don't know. Um, I'm meddling. Here we go. We need to take an inventory of our rhetoric. If we were to play back what we have stated, texted, or posted on social media this past week, would others see words dripped with praise to God, or is it divisive, venomous, and passive-aggressive? Mm. Right? Let's just play it on the screen. Can you imagine? This is David's past week. We're all going to watch it. Take an inventory of our spirit this past week. Have we been supportive, loving, and helpful, or has it been critical, bitter, and destructive? Take an inventory of our humility. Are we quick to say, I'm sorry, or please forgive me, or are we demanding our rights and requiring that I have to be in the know? Do we take an inventory of our respect? Do we support, submit, and pray, or do we undermine, distrust, and question? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. No wonder Paul states in 1 Thessalonians 5, admonish the undisciplined. And so we come here and you look at this church that's being birthed and their devotion, etc. And what do you see on their lips? 
praise. Now that's saying something because we're, we're shortly going to get an Acts where they're being arrested for this. I mean, you can praise Jesus, just keep it soft. <laughs> don't let anyone know. No, you don't see that with him. It, it's public. It, it's, this is our God. And we rejoice and praise him. It's been said, there's only one thing that the devil cannot counterfeit, and that is praising God. The demons may believe and tremble, but they do not give praise to the Lord. If we spent more time praising our Lord, we would have less time to talk about others and ourselves. Ouch, right? Praise serves as the ultimate test of one's profession, I would argue, in Christ. If praise is not on your lips, I seriously question whether you have a relationship with Christ, if I could be so bold. Corporate worship occurs when God's people express collectively glory due to his name. Anything less than that is not true worship, it's phony worship, and we might as well go home. I love the hymn, the old hymn by Julia who writes, We praise you, O God, our Redeemer, Creator. In grateful devotion, our tribute we bring. We lay it before we, you. We kneel and adore you. We bless your holy name. Glad praises we sing. Listen to the second verse. We worship you, God of our fathers. We bless thee. Through life's storms and tempest, our guide you have been. When perils overtake us, you never forsake us. And with your help, O oh Lord, our battles we win. Wow. Praise on the lips. And as you see here in these believers in verse 47, it's ongoing. They're praising the Lord. People think they're crazy. There's that group of Christians again, right? There's others who say, well, if you're going to follow Jesus, I cannot associate with you. You're out of the synagogue. You, you know, you can't join the mill train or you can't be a part of the the food pantry, you're out. I'm not coming to take leaves out of your gutters anymore. I mean, you're done. And yet, this group, instead of sucking on prune juice, I think that's what you do, I don't know, puckering up, they're magnifying the Lord. And so as Psalm 34 states, magnify the Lord with me. Let us praise his name together. And so here's a group, and the manner in which they're gathering is vital. This is not the frozen chosen sitting there with their arms crossed. Oh, yeah, they could quote verses all day long. <laughs> but there's no contagious joy or, or love. Whew. And notice it doesn't end there. We see the caring, the sharing with food, etc. In verse 46, and seeking the goodwill of others. Daryl Bach in his commentary writes, a vibrant community extends itself in two directions, towards God and towards the neighbor. A veiled reference to obedience in the great commandment appears here, and I think he's right. Notice it says they have goodwill to the people. That is, they have favor. You know what the interesting thing is? That term is a cognate of grace. The grace that you extend to others. We are created for community. Howard Henrik states it well, Christianity is always personal, but it is never private. He's right. We're called to live in a community and be empowered for the community, witness through the community, serve the community, grow in the community. This requires that we seek the goodwill of others. And it applies to all areas, whether it's the realm of encouragement or in matters of discipline. 
And so, Peter's given his sermon. The Spirit has worked. He's, the Spirit's called people to the Lord. We see the, the numbers grow to 3,000. And we see here, this birth of the church, what marks it is laid out here. And you ask, give me a church? Here it is. And notice what happens. The Lord was adding to their numbers daily. No, we don't play the name, number game per se, but what it tells us here is the Lord blesses that group who were faithful. It's not because of a correct program, bells and whistles, or an incredible PR campaign. It begins with the Lord, and it ends with the Lord. The early church, keep this in mind, was not comprised of super saints. They were ordinary believers who were passionate about the word it was a place of spiritual growth, a spiritual praise, a place where it's relational enough to meet the needs and engage the culture and share Christ. It's no wonder later in Acts 26 we are told that this movement turns the world upside down. And so, as we look at this text and we apply it to our lives this morning, Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology lays out Acts 2. It's very interesting and he says, there are three major purposes of the church, and all three are found here in Acts 2. The first is a ministry to God. That's done through worship. It's done through prayer. So there's a ministry to God. There's a ministry to believers. That's discipleship, mercy, and fellowship. And there's a ministry to the world, and that's through evangelism and mercy. All of those are key. And so when I bring you to this building on 161st with the three crosses and the stained glass window, I ask, what is this church known for? What's it, the chicken nuggets? <laughs> or is it one that ministers to the Lord well, ministers to believers, and ministers to the word? world? Excuse me. As our church grows, may we not lose sight of these purposes for the church. So this morning, asking the question of all of us, in what ways are we intentionally contributing to the purposes of the local church? Let me give you some challenges this week. This doesn't matter how old you are, young or old, here are some challenges. Spend each day this week praying for your church, for your, the leadership and our volunteers. It's one thing you can be doing. Maybe take a few minutes each day worshiping our Lord, singing a song, praising his name, writing a poem. I don't know. For those that are not so artsy, maybe you need to write five to six notes this week to individuals, letting them know how much they mean to you and that you're praying for them. Perhaps this week you need to call someone and apologize for words or actions that were ungodly or gossip that you shared which was untrue. If you're married with kids, perhaps tackling a family project. How to reach out to others. Maybe as a family you prepare a meal. Maybe you make cookies. I'll be over to help. Yum. Right? Pray that the Lord gives you an opportunity this week to share Christ and then seize the moment. Or perhaps it's volunteer to assist with the local parachurch ministry such as Family Hope. There are a whole host of opportunities. So let me challenge you this week. How am I contributing to the purposes of the church in my own life? Am I sitting in a pew, soaking it in, or am I really engaged? Yeah, there were 3,000, but I assure you there was a lot of engagement 
in Acts chapter 2, as we see. Perhaps this morning you need to identify one area which you can contribute to unity within the local body of believers. Maybe that's through praying, a note of encouragement, reaching out to men's fences, giving a hug, sending a text with a Bible verse, whatever the case might be. But it is our desire, similar to Acts 2, and no, this group wasn't perfect either, just wait till we get to Ananias and Sapphira. <laughs> they weren't perfect either. They were sinners saved by grace. Don't kid yourself. You know, I, I saw this sign, it's been a while back, we're a first century church. Well, I hope you're not like the church at Corinth. <laughs> that church had so many problems. But it is our prayer that we model what we see here, devotion, commitment to the word, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, to prayer. As we see here in fellowship, as I mentioned, the, the giving and sharing of our goods and understanding that all that we have is his. And then the manner in which we meet, which is spelled out here in the latter two verses. That's our desire. As the musicians come, I, I just ask that you bow your heads and close your eyes. Something we don't always do. I don't know about you, but I was convicted even this week as I was studying this text of how am I, oh yeah, you preach on a Sunday, Hophetus, but what are you doing personally to minister to the saints? Perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, yeah, I need to do a better job of contributing to the local body. Perhaps it's been loose lips, a critical spirit, a failure to participate, and you just say, hey, Hoffaditz, I need your prayers this morning. Would you pray for me? You just raise your hand. No one's looking except me. Say, yeah, would you pray for me? Perhaps it's one that says, hey, this morning, you've talked a lot about the church, but I don't belong to the church. I don't have a relationship with Christ. I, I don't know the peace and the joy and the, the one that, that would bring gladness. And I, I need prayer. Would you raise your hand and we can pray for you? Yes. A couple hands, yes. Lord, we... Uh, are sinners saved by grace. It's our desire to be holy. It's our desire to walk in purity and in the fashion that we read of in Acts 2. But Lord, there's times when we fall short. I know I have. And Father, it's our desire that we walk humbly before you. Lord, for those that raised hands to say, yeah, I need to get some things right with the Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would work in those situations, that there would be a bending of the knee and an understanding. For some who raised hands that say, I'm, I don't belong to the church and I need to know this gospel, this Savior called Jesus and the joy that comes, Lord, I pray that uh, they would reach out to one of us so they would know from your word or that they would turn to you. Father, thank you for the church. You could have planned a different means to carry out your purpose here on earth, but no, you have called the church your son's bride. 
Oh Lord, we are so thankful that we are, there's a promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. She's right on target. Oh, <laughs> there are some tragic stories. There's some wounded souls through the church big C throughout history. And Lord, it's our desire to be a, a church that fulfills what you have called us to do and loving you and loving others by carrying out that great commission. Help us to do that well. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.